on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks were frequent, a crude little life-saving station was built. The building itself was nothing more than a small hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted crewmen kept a constant watch and vigil over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day or night tirelessly searching for anyone who might need their help, and many lives were saved because of their selfless efforts. After a while, the station gained public attention. Some of those who had been saved, as well as locals from the surrounding area, wanted to become a part of the work. They gave time and money for its support. New boats were bought, additional crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the newer members were a little unhappy because the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt like a larger, nicer place would be a more appropriate first welcome and a first refuge and welcome for those saved from the sea. And so they replaced the emergency cots with hospital beds and bought better furniture for the larger lobby. And soon the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members to discuss the work and visit with each other. They continued to remodel and decorate different parts of the building until the station slowly but steadily took on the look and character of a club. Only a few members were interested in going out on actual life-saving missions now, so professional crews were hired to do the work. One day, a large ship was wrecked off of their coast, and the hired crews brought in many boatloads of people, cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, bruised, and sick, and as a result, the little life-saving station was a terrible mess. So the property committee promptly met, had a shower house built outside so that the, the uh, shipwrecked victims could uh, be cleaned up before coming inside the building. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activities altogether. They were unpleasant, a little inconvenient, and a hindrance to the social life of the club. But other members insisted on keeping life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, we were still called a life-saving station. But those members were voted down and told if they wanted to go on with the life-saving activities, they could begin their own station down the coast somewhere. And that's exactly what they did. And as the years went by, the new life-saving station eventually faced very similar problems the original one had faced. And it, too, became more like a club, and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. And the few members who were still dedicated to the life-saving activities began another station. And history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coastline today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but sadly, most of the people drown. Now, as you probably noticed, as I shared that little parable of the life-saving station with you, you recognize the potential of this being the story of the church. If the church ever loses sight of her purpose and calling. 
You know, like the life-saving station, churches are launched with a clear and compelling calling and a sincere desire to reach the lost and broken and hurting world with the compassion and love and good news of Jesus. And as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed and displayed in our everyday life, the broken are loved and the wounded are healed, the lonely are embraced, the despairing find hope, the struggling are helped, and the lost are found. But the mission of the life-saving station was threatened and eventually thwarted as the gaze of its members shifted, becoming less focused on its primary mission and more focused on their comfort and cleanliness. And in the same way, in the same way, the mission of the church will be threatened if the gaze of her members is shifted from her primary calling, if we're ever drawn away from the cause of Christ and refocused instead on legalistic rules or man-made traditions or personal preferences or private agendas. And I share that with you because as we continue our study of Luke's gospel this morning, the passage that we are looking at today, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, in this passage, Jesus calls a man named Levi to follow him. And then Jesus is confronted by religious leaders, by religious leaders whose gaze had shifted away from the primary mission and become stuck in their own man-made rules and traditions. And so Jesus would then need to clarify for them his mission to seek and save the lost. So we're going to work our way through these six verses today and then consider how its truth is still relevant for our lives today. We're going to begin in verses 27 to 29. Jesus calls Levi to follow him. So look at verses 27 and 28 with me. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, three weeks ago, we looked at the previous section of this chapter uh, where Jesus had healed a paralyzed man and sent him walking home with his friends on his own two feet. And if you remember, Jesus had performed that visible, physical healing in order to prove that he had the authority to provide the invisible spiritual cleansing from sin. And of course, in that moment when the healing occurred, everyone marveled at what had happened. But, but, as I mentioned three weeks ago, no one else in the crowd that day had ever turned to Jesus and said and asked him to forgive their sins as well, just as he had done for the paralytic. Everyone focused solely on the physical healing, the restoring of his ability to walk, and they ignored the greater spiritual cleansing. Now, right here in verse 27, Luke begins with these words, after this. And what he means is, 
He's telling us that the events of today's passage occur right on the heels of the healing of the paralytic. Jesus left the house that he had been teaching in. He walked out of town, and there he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now, tax collectors in general were a despised and hated group of people. People hated them. The Roman tax system itself was oppressive and very corrupt. And tax collectors could abuse the authority they received from the government, and they could extort more money from citizens and merchants, more than what Rome required. And then those tax collectors could take that extra that they extorted, pad their own pockets with that. And so they often attempted to squeeze out of a person every penny they could get. Now, most tax collectors were quite wealthy because the extortion and fraud created a rather lucrative business for them. And, uh, and so they kind of entered their daily lives with several strikes against them in the public eye. First, these men were not Romans. They were Jews who worked for the Romans. And so the Jews hated them because they were branded as traitors. Second, they extorted and defrauded their own people. They were callously robbing their own countrymen in order to get rich themselves. And they were in constant contact with Gentiles, which in the eyes of Jewish people rendered them unclean. They also brought tremendous shame on their family, and they were excommunicated from the synagogue, and they were not allowed to serve as witnesses in court because their dishonesty made them untrustworthy as witnesses. So all of this comes together to help us understand that in a Jewish culture, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. People hated them, despised them. Now, if you remember back in chapter 3, as John the Baptist was preaching, and he was calling people to repent and to live their lives in accordance with their repentance. You remember he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, while he was preaching, some of you might remember a group of tax collectors asked John, what does that mean for us as tax collectors? And if you remember, John the Baptist did not ever say that it was sinful to be a tax collector. He never said it was wrong for them to work for the Roman government. He simply told them not to collect more taxes than what was required. No more extortion. No more fraud. No more squeezing people for everything you can get out of them. And there's no evidence that Luke gives us, that Levi himself was dishonest as a tax collector, but Levi would have incurred the people's disgust and their disapproval. They would have disliked him simply because he was a tax collector. Now, Jesus had traveled a lot between Capernaum and the surrounding villages and towns. He was teaching and ministering to people. And so he probably had passed by Levi's tax booth a number of times. And Levi 
maybe even had heard him teaching his disciples and the crowds from time to time. From, on various occasions, he may have gotten to hear quite a lot of Jesus' teaching. But on this occasion today, Luke says Jesus saw Levi. He saw him. And Luke uses a word that means more than he just glanced his way and looked at him. Luke uses a word that means Jesus gave a careful look and considered the object in his vision. See, Jesus didn't just glance Levi's way and see his outward appearance as a man might do. Now, Levi, he gave Levi this deliberate and penetrating look because the Lord looks at the heart of a man, right? The text does not say this, but I almost could picture Jesus kind of just looking at Levi and standing there quietly until Levi eventually looked up and made eye contact with Jesus. And then Jesus said these words to him. Follow me. Follow me, Levi. Come on. And this invitation to follow Jesus, this wasn't just an invitation to come and join the other group of disciples and walk around town and spend time with Jesus and hang out and get to know him a little bit. It was more than that. This, this invitation to follow him was a command to come and imitate me. Come and imitate Jesus. You know, as Jesus led his disciples through town and out into the countryside, the disciples would follow behind him and they would listen to him speak and they would ask him questions about things he was teaching and they would commit to memory the words that he uttered and the lessons that he taught. The call to follow was a call to become like Jesus. When he said, Levi, follow me, he was inviting Levi to come and become like me, to have a heart like Jesus' heart, to have attitudes like his attitude, to treat people as Jesus treated people, to have feelings like Jesus' feelings, to love as he loved, and to live as he lived. That's what it means to follow him. And friends, when the Lord calls us today to follow him, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. It's still a call to submit to Jesus as our master and our teacher. It's a call to listen as he speaks to understand all that he teaches, and then to do in every situation what he requires. That's what it means to follow Jesus. More simply put, to follow Jesus means we seek to live as Jesus would live if he were in our shoes. We must seek to live as Jesus would live if he were in our shoes. That's what it means to follow. Now, this invitation given to Levi would have been utterly amazing to everyone around, including Levi himself. Because of all of the people in Capernaum, Levi was probably the most unlikely and even unacceptable candidate for following Jesus and being a disciple. Jesus was, in fact, inviting the man that everyone despised. He was inviting the man no one else wanted in their presence. He was inviting the man that many probably wished 
would fall under God's severest judgment. That's who he calls. As fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they would certainly have known Levi and probably despised him like everyone else because they would have been required to pay him taxes on the fish they caught and sold from the Sea of Galilee. And I can only imagine how surprised those guys were. Can only imagine. When Jesus stopped at Levi's tax booth and said to Levi, come follow me. Join us. Can't imagine how that would have gone over with the other disciples. Because they would have had their hearts toward Levi would probably have been pretty hard. But now Jesus has stopped and invited him to join their company and become a disciple. And friends, that is the glorious mercy of Jesus' ministry, isn't it? He comes to people like Levi, people like us, people who don't fit in, people who don't probably deserve it, people who have all kinds of strikes against them. And he comes to us with mercy and he says to us, to you and me, come follow me. It's just his glorious mercy. And verse 28 says, Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And when I studied that this week, I thought, well, of course he did. Can you imagine what this was like for Levi? For once in his life, he was not being shunned. He was actually being chosen somebody was coming to him a rabbi a respected prominent rabbi was coming to him and saying i want you to follow me can you imagine what that was like for levi and his obedience to jesus's call was immediate and wholehearted and you have to understand what levi did in leaving everything this was no small thing friends when he walked he walked away from a lucrative business and once he walked away, there was no going back. He was through. You see, for Simon and Andrew and James and John, they walked away from the family fishing business to follow Jesus back in verse 11. But they had the ability to return to that job if they ever chose to do so. They could always go back to fishing. But that was not the case for Levi. When he left his tax business, he was done. Because Rome would never rehire a man who abandoned his responsibility at his office. Rome would never rehire him. Levi's repentance and full surrender to Jesus is seen in this wholehearted commitment. He left everything and followed. And friends, Levi never looked back. He never looked back. He followed Jesus for the rest of his life. We know this because Levi is the disciple we more commonly know as Matthew, the author of the first gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Matthew. And so when Levi made this decisive break with his old life, he was thrilled to do it. There was no pity party on his part, no sour, sulking spirit, and no regrets. He left everything, and he did it with enthusiasm and joy, with banners waving. And he wasted no time 
in giving his peers a chance to meet his Savior. Look at verse 29. It says, Then Levi held a great party or a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. See, Levi's commitment to Christ, this full surrender, created, it stirred up in him this immediate concern for the souls of his friends. So he did something unusual and highly creative, I think. He threw a party, a great banquet, Luke said. And he invited first his longtime irreligious colleagues. Well, now truthfully, they were probably the only ones who would accept his invitation and even come to his house because everybody else hated Levi. Uh, but then Levi also invited his newly found religious friends, Jesus and the disciples. See, rather than immediately cutting ties with his colleagues and friends, he actually invited them to his home so that they could experience Jesus for themselves. You know, the synagogue was never going to reach these people, the other tax collectors, because they had all been banished, excommunicated. So the synagogue was never going to reach these folks. But in the relaxed environment of Levi's home, maybe, just maybe, they would see in Jesus what Levi had seen in Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, some spiritual seeds could be planted that could bear fruit over time. Now, the banquet was a time of celebration. You have to understand, feasting was for laughter and joy. The transformation of Levi's heart, this, this, uh, uh, the uh, conversion experience that uh, Levi had experienced was the reason, it was the primary reason to rejoice. In fact, I can't really think of a better one. But it, the party was also a way to honor Jesus. Notice Luke says the banquet was for Jesus. Jesus was the guest of honor. And in some ways that's appropriate, right? Because without the Savior, Levi would have no salvation to celebrate. And on the day of the banquet, Jesus would have sat with Levi at the head table as the guest of honor. And there would have been good food and lots to drink and lots of laughter and fun. For this was a joyful and festive occasion. And Jesus joined in and participated. And without lowering himself to sin, he was able to relax and simply enjoy the company of Levi and his friends. But not everyone applauded the celebration. Not everybody thought this was a great day. Look at verse 30. It says, But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees and teachers of the law they had not been invited to the party. They wouldn't have gone if they had been. But uh, it seems that they continued to follow Jesus around town like a pack of paparazzi, kind of watching and waiting for him to do something that they disagreed with so they could argue. But the truth is, here's the truth. The Pharisees, like Jesus, 
They should have been celebrating. They should have been celebrating. A sinner had repented. And then he left everything. He left his old life. And he had become a follower of a rabbi. Luke will tell us later that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. The Pharisees should have been celebrating, but they didn't. In fact, they couldn't. Because with their strict, inflexible rules about holiness, there was no place in their minds for a party like Levi was throwing. So when Jesus walked into Levi's house and joined the celebration, the Pharisees, I think, went on tilt. They just couldn't understand how Jesus could do such a thing. And they pulled the disciples aside and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? How can you do this? You see, the Pharisees believed that holiness requires them to separate completely from sinners. Put as much distance as you can between them. And the Pharisees regarded Levi and his friends as sinners. Why? Because they didn't adhere to the Pharisees' standards about purity, holiness, and cleanliness. And, they believe, and the Pharisees believed that if we spend time with people who are sinful, then we autom it automatically leaves us defiled, contaminated, and stained. And so they just kept backing away with, with every step they could. And further, to eat and drink with sinners, this was especially heinous because in Mediterranean culture, sharing a meal suggests full acceptance of a person and approval of their lifestyle. That's what it suggests in that culture. And so to the Pharisees' way of thinking, mixing socially with brazen, unrepentant sinners around a meal table, well, that's just condoning their sin. And it would leave a person, a God-fearing person, unclean, filthy by association. So the Pharisees separated themselves from sinful people, keeping their distance so that they wouldn't be contaminated by associating with someone. And when the Pharisees' question was brought to Jesus, I think the disciples, after being asked by the Pharisees, I think the disciples went to Jesus and said, here's what the Pharisees are asking. But when the Pharisees' question was brought to Jesus, Jesus patiently clarified his mission for them again. Look at verses 31 and 32. It says, Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the scribes and Pharisees had criticized Jesus because they didn't understand his ministry or his message. Jesus simply didn't fit into their traditional religious life concept. Jesus was taking an entirely different approach than they would have done. When Jesus attended Levi's party, he did not go in order to sin with them. He had the spiritual well-being of Levi and his friends on his mind and in his heart. He, Jesus understood that spending time with and being friends with 
sinful people. That doesn't defile a believer. Defilement comes when a person sins, when they actually sin. Defilement doesn't come because we hang out with somebody who sins. And further, and further, Jesus understood that rarely, if ever, rarely, if ever, will sinners be influenced towards faith if we simply withdraw and keep our distance from them. That's not going to win anybody. Influence requires proximity. Influence requires proximity. Jesus was not going to separate himself. He was going to seek them out and spend time with them. He would later in Luke 19 say, I've come to seek and save the lost. Now to clarify all of this for the Pharisees, Jesus used a very simple and common analogy. Jesus used the analogy of being a doctor. He said, people who see themselves as healthy, well, they don't seek out a doctor. Only those who know they are sick go to a doctor. I don't know about all the rest of you, but I tried to think back this week as I was preparing the sermon, and I've come to the conclusion I have never heard anybody say, boy, I have been feeling really good these days. I probably need to go see my doctor, right? You just have never heard any, people don't say that, right? Instead, somebody says, I don't feel well. Something's wrong. I think I better call my doctor. And beyond that, I've never heard a sick person being made well because the doctor lectured to healthy people about the dangers of disease. Never heard of a sick person being made well with that approach, any of you? The only way sick people get treated is if the doctors get close to those who are sick. We the doctor needs to be in their presence. And so Jesus said to the Pharisees, I'm going to be with sinners because the sick, I, I've, the sick need a doctor. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. And Jesus goes one step further with this when he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what Jesus means is this. He's saying, I have not come to call those who think they are already righteous, for they do not see any need for a Savior. I've not come to call them. Instead, I have come to call those who know they are sinful and need a Savior. People who see their sin and they know they need to be rescued. That's who I've come to call. The Pharisees thought Jesus was lowering the standards of holiness by hanging out with sinful people, but in reality, Jesus was getting close to those who needed him and then inviting those who were ready to respond. And he called them to repentance. He said, I'm calling them to repentance. For while the gospel of grace and forgiveness is offered to everyone, it's only received by those who first repent. Now, before I close today's message, let me just share four ideas with you about how I think this passage and its truth is still relevant for us today in 2022. And first, I'll say, uh, my first application is this. If you see your need for a doctor, Jesus is still taking on new patients. Okay? If you see your need for a doctor, 
Jesus is still taking on new patients. If you recognize your sin and you need a savior, the door to his clinic is open. And the only thing you need to bring with you is repentance and faith. The New Testament book of 1 John says, if we will confess our sin and own it and repent of it, God will respond with complete forgiveness and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, two weeks ago on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and even this morning as we celebrated communion together, we remember that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin, punishment that we deserve. And then he arose from the grave to break the chains of sin and death so that we no longer live under its power. So if you have never turned to Christ in faith, but you see your need for that this morning, I would urge you to turn to him. And in the privacy of your own heart, you can talk to him. Admit your need. Admit the sickness that you know is there. Confess your sin. That's the way the Bible talks about it. We confess our sin. We repent and we surrender our lives to him as our Lord and leader. So I would encourage you to do that if you see your need for a doctor today. Second, like Levi did, I would encourage you to look for creative and fun ways to try to gather your Christian and non-Christian friends together. And then ask God to work. Look for creative and fun ways to get Christian and non-Christian friends together and then ask God to work. Hold a block party. Do a backyard barbecue. Do a picnic in the park. You can think about using annual holidays a little bit more strategically or annual events, you know, Super Bowls and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Fourth of July, Christmas, these kinds of things. Think about how to use those strategically. You could also celebrate your friends and neighbors' birthdays and anniversaries, promotions, retirements, and any other kind of milestone event in their life. Just look for opportunities to celebrate with them. Look for opportunities and then invite them together and enjoy them. And in the process of doing that, ask God to do his work. Ask him to give you opportunities to share your faith and then look for opportunities to bear fruit. But understand, God will do that in his way and in his time. Don't try to force things, but look for them, pray for them as you gather your Christian and non-Christian friends together. Third, as you spend time with unbelievers, be wise about your own temptations and vulnerabilities. Be wise about your own temptations and vulnerabilities. This is simply an acknowledgement that we all have limits and triggers and we're vulnerable to temptation. So, for example, if you are easily tempted to drink too much, choose locations where there isn't any alcohol. Or if certain topics kind of get your blood boiling or maybe get your words raging, then simply excuse yourself from those conversations and go have a conversation with a different group of people. Because here's the thing. The devil would love to twist this whole thing around and use it to damage your reputation for Christ. He would love that. So don't give him space 
to do it. Instead, simply be wise and honest about your own limitations and triggers and vulnerabilities, and then use common sense and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as you enter into those contexts. Fourth and finally, keep the mission of the church clear in your mind. Keep the mission of the church clear in your mind. Like the Pharisees, we are vulnerable to losing sight of what's at the very heart of our faith. And we can slowly and subtly begin to think of the church as an exclusive club for people just like us, right? And we forget that the church is called to serve people as a life-saving station. And so we need to be cautious that we keep that focus in mind. And like Levi, like Levi, we must never forget that before Jesus saved us, we too were lost and without hope and without God in this world. But now that Jesus has saved us, he's called us to keep a constant watch for people whose lives are shipwrecked near our shores. And so we keep this mission of the church clear in our mind. And I would encourage you to do this kind of thing. Pray for specific people. Pray for specific people. Keep a list of names and implore heaven for the salvation of their souls. I have a list of unsaved people that I pray for by name. If you don't have a list, I would urge you to make one and then put that list in a place where you will see it every day and be reminded to pray for those folks. We don't do this because we're better than they are. Okay? That's not the heart behind this. We do it because we were once lost too. Before Jesus saved us, we were, we were without hope. We are simply, uh, I read this quote a number of years ago, we are simply one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. That's all we're doing. It's not because we think we're better. We're just trying to help. So friends, there are a lot of shipwrecked lives near our shores, and many people are drowning. So let's ask God to give us eyes to see as he sees, courage to go where he goes, to go where he leads, and compassion to serve the world that he loves so much. Let's pray, and then the worship team will come and lead us in our final song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning together, the opportunity to gather and worship and pray and give and study your word and encourage one another in fellowship. Oh, this is a privilege, and we don't want to take it for granted. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you for how you're revealing yourself to us in it every week. And God, I pray that your spirit would continue to be at work in us. And I pray he would help us with those very things we just mentioned. I pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see as you see. I pray that he would give us courage to go where you lead. And I pray that he would give us compassion to serve the world that you love 
so much. Lord, we thank you for Hal and his ministry to us this weekend. We pray for your continued favor and blessing to be poured out on him, his family, and his ministry. Go with us now, helping us to live each day for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name.